Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just about four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, part one of the life story of Bishop Emeritus Hilton Deacon and his work with countries around the world and in particular East Timor. What does the French presidential elections mean for the Pacific colonies? Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, will be in. Trump, the Middle East and Manchester with Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Politics, the Political Economy at Sydney University and a member of Hands Off Syria. The suspension of the hunger strikes by 1,600 Palestinian prisoners in Israel. I'll be speaking to Yusuf Al-Rimawi, who's the presenter of Palestine Remembered here on 3CR on a Saturday morning. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when that madness in Manchester, based on the live-and-let-live-love-thy-neighbour theology of religion, unless you're not one of us, a non-whatever, an infidel, die-and-let-die... Imagine what a mess the world would be in but for the compassionate overlay of religion across the centuries. Apart from the slaughters of one religion against another and against each other when heretics arise by questioning some minor point in whatever revelatory tome or tomes that lot passionately quote. Nations at war for peace putting the same God in a bit of a bind by praying to her, him, it for their righteous cause to prevail as they go about slaughtering each other. Although some seemingly insoluble conflicts may just need the timely God-given Messiah to intervene and prove they are anything but insoluble. Bringing us to US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo done trample the poor. A while ago, Donald displayed his in-depth grasp of the issue by declaring achieving peace between Zion and the Palestinian non-state non-people should be easy, very, very easy, very good. And direct quote, Saturday, I can't compete. It may not be as difficult as people have thought over the years. Don't we have to love Donald's modesty alongside our existing admiration for his intelligence? He managed to assist the regional peace process by flogging a hundred billion plus in merchants of death merchandise to that bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, which the Secretary of US of World State Rex Killerson said would make a major contribution to world peace and showed how the US of and Saudi both just love peace. And we can be sure the people of Yemen must have taken to the streets to celebrate when they heard Saudi would be unloading another hundred bill of peace on them. In his quest for peace, Donald was also forced to chastise the US of the world NATO lot for not spending enough on train killer merchandise to guarantee peace. Noted last week how thrilled Zion Supremo Benjamin Not Another Yahoo looked as, just as he thought the compulsory long handshake smiling at the camera photo op was over, Donald blurted, I did not mention Zion to the Ruskies, further confirming what didn't need to be further confirmed. And this week, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country joined the queue, was as thrilled as Benjamin when US of media published what Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country considered classified intelligence. 
In all these cases, of course, we use the word intelligence loosely. Considered, and Donald said he would investigate how this happened because he displays a deep understanding of what classified intelligence means, as he states every day on his Today's Secret Intelligence Radio, Telly and Twitch show with Donald Trample the Paw. And naturally, they all know about these things, complain about evil countries spying on them or interfering in their affairs because of their own experience in spying on everyone else and interfering in their affairs. Although, let's qualify that. The US of is righteously, religiously distressed that Russia may have interfered in its election in order to install the Mobile Security League who got elected because we all know the US of would never interfere in another country's business, elections or internal politics. Its stations train killer military bases and armadas and merchants of death merchandise all over the world to protect that neutrality. For instance, it is hoping there may be an election in Venezuela shortly to get rid of that evil commie government, but only as a neutral observer. Back here, we neutrally observe the top 200 or however of the most filthy rich of the filthy rich list announced Friday, with poor Gina slipping to third. But congratulations to Anthony Heeser-Pratt for his big win, earned by his own talent all those years ago, the night his dad, Big Dick, impregnated his mum, Jeannie, on one of the nights Big Dick happened to be in that bed. Doesn't the publication of the big winners inspire us to get out there, listener, and strive to make the list next year? Although in our case, when we try it, they arrest us for highway robbery, whereas for them it's smart business, community altruism, good for all of us. Bit like that evil commie Karl Marx's disgraceful comment that murder is not murder when it's done for profit. Killing workers is a bit of collateral damage, carrying no jail term. Fighting for safety on the job to prevent death and injury is now the crime, costing the building unions in particular a fortune because of the shameful way they interfere with the filthy rich becoming filthy richer. Shame, building unions. Shame. A huge number of the top 200 made their fortunes from, quote, property. Well, they all have in one way or another, but a large number specifically. And what better incentive for the homeless to get out of their gutters and make something of themselves? If they can't make it onto the list by this time next year, it's their own fault. Strange, with all those fortunes made from property, that there are homeless. Surely there's a little corner somewhere and all those cranes and construction and mountains of buildings which are the city skyline, but apparently not, although no business of the property filthy rich anyway. It's a sad reflection on the lack of initiative, incentive of the homeless, and don't forget the filthy rich, well, some of them, get together one night a year, complete with their state-of-the-art sleeping bags and warm, warm ski attire, and sleep in the open at the MCG or wherever to draw attention to the fact that there are lazy good-for-nothing homeless out there, so don't say they don't care. Like the Palestinian non-state non-people we referred to, back here we too suffer the presence and nuisance of a non-state non-people, the terra nullius non-people, who insist they should be treated as people, when they would be even more non-people if they hadn't abused our hospitality, our generosity to their savage, pagan, neolithic lifestyle, and survived the numerous attempts at compassionate genocide. Suppose the only consolation is a day at the footy wouldn't be nearly as exciting if the genocide had succeeded. 
Fifty years ago this week, we were good enough to acknowledge they had no, they could non-exist and the Canberra lot could make laws giving them some non-exist non-rights, but now they want a bloody treaty, as if attempted compassionate suicide or genocide was a war or something. It, it's bad enough they want to call our great National Day True Blue Aussie Day. Well, along with Train Killer Day, our great National Day Invasion Day, as if... Although calling it war may open the door for Rex Killerson and the US of merchants of death to flog us a few billion, well, a few more billion, train killer merchandise so we can show how much we love peace and coexistence, just like the Saudis in Zion. The call for a treaty has so angered those who feel thwarted in the humanitarian attempt to help the Terranilius non-state non-people, particularly Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle. See, just like the vote to give these land-grabbing threat to every suburban backyard non-people non-rights 50 years ago, which led to the massive advances we have seen in that time, another referendum to recognise their non-rights in the Constitution would lead to even greater advances. And in 50 years, who knows what more advances may be achieved through another token, a sorry, critically important vote. So Barnacle is understandably upset at the slap in the face to decent true blue Aussies like, well, like Barnacle himself, who said he was all for the Constitution bit but a treaty. You've got to have something you can sell to the true blue Aussie people, he's flirted. And clearly Barnacle knows you can't sell treaty to the true blue Aussie people, not like you can sell a coal mine. Well, in this case, give away a coal mine. Or wrong again, uh, finance a coal mine for the private filthy rich owner. Uh, but Barnacle, the true blue Aussie people overwhelmingly oppose this coal mine. You, you haven't been able to sell it to them. So, they'll just have to live and bear it. Don't true blue Aussie people want jobs, 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 and don't true blue Aussie people want to lift the poor of India out of poverty while enriching one of the filthy richest of the Indian filthy rich at the same time? Hmm, good point. But dissent in the Socialist Party government up north in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land, as the left, <laughs> left, why do I laugh when I say that? The left and the right fight over whether to give the Adani the climate coal lot a, to a total royalty holiday or a partial one. Not sure which side argues which, but all those jobs, jobs, jobs and lifting the poor out of poverty could be achieved with a little bit of help. We build the railway, no taxes, no royalties and... Wait, wait, report out of India this week, where this coal is essential to lift the poor out of poverty, solar power is now cheaper than fossil power, huh? Well, with all that sun, it's not exactly a surprise, but, but, but no, I don't get it either, listener. Still, finally, we need all those jobs and think of all the jobs elsewhere. Why Barnacle and the government couldn't believe people could be so inconsiderate, so loathe the workers of Wyala, whom Barnacle and co. so care about, they would oppose Adani the climate saving Wyala by having it provide those rails, being prepared big-heartedly to sign the contract uh, with our money. They're all generosity and all people of principle. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Kevin Healy. And uh, you can say good morning to Mr. Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at nine for his program, City Limits, here on Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR.
This Thursday, the 1st of June, a remarkable account of the East Timorese struggle for self-determination through the eyes of a Melbourne Catholic bishop, Hilton Deacon, will be launched in a book titled Bonded Through Tragedy, United in Hope. But the book is much more than his work with East Timor as a Catholic priest, as we'll hear in this first part of his story, and next week the focus will be on East Timor. Hilton, you acknowledged that prior to October 1991, your interest in and knowledge of East Timor was not high on your list of priorities, but there were other areas of concern which had occupied you for many years. Can we talk about some of those which, in a sense, shaped your quest for social justice? And I believe we can begin with your childhood. I think, Jan, when I talk about my early childhood, as I suggest most people have to, you're reconstructing it even as you talk it. It's possibly not quite what it used to be. It might have sounded more enlightening to me now than it was then, but I do remember it so vividly. I came from quite poor parents in New South Wales, in the country, on the edge of a very little town, uh, which only had several hundred people in it and about a dozen streets. I was born during the Depression. My father was a... His father was a farmer, but uh, he became interested in horse racing. (laughs) He lost his farm, but he lost it because he couldn't manage it properly anyway. But his father was an Englishman who came out here and started us all off. I can recall now that I... In being taught by my mother, she was the great teacher because Dad was always away working in in the bush. Had another sister. We ended up having two more. She had three others as well who all died, so that's the story. But she taught us to, you do what you think is best to do, but if you do wrong, don't come to me. You've got to wear it. That wasn't the word because that wasn't the phrase in those days. It was something like it. It, it, It's up to you. She used other words. And and this was an important thing for me. You've got to learn to think for yourself on your own two little feet. If you're going to step on that frog out there, it's you that's stepping on that frog and you're the one that's going to kill it. And so you're to blame if anybody's going to say you all that. Now, that came to me very early. But what it did, my mum used to love taking us out my sister and myself, in a pram. And I remember I tootled along. She was a year younger than me. So I would have been at three, four, and I can remember this. And she'd go for a walk with us in the country, in the, down the tracks, and talk about the birds. And have, Now look down below you. There's a lot of stuff moving. It's life. It's all alive and all this sort of stuff. And a person became sensitive about things. Now, in in all this process, I was given a very magnificent little present, and it was a dog, whiskey. Mm. (laughs) Well, whiskey slept with me, whiskey ate with me, whiskey everything. And I had him until I was 11. And I had to leave him behind because that's when we came to Melbourne. But he was another... I had to be kind to animals. It was the other part of this whole... Not just little ants and things, but don't go killing them if you, for the sake of it and all this stuff. Now, th- those sort of things stayed with me for some reason or other. Now, there was another thing that was even more important. We lived very simple lives. Like I remember Christmas time, my sister and I were both very lucky if we got one present. My mother 
always wanted it to be a book, a little book with 10 pages in it or whatever. And actually, she taught me how to read. And I was able to read when I was four and a half. That's when I went and started going to school. Four and a half, not even five. And she was not a scholar or anything, but she said, now you've got to learn to read. Reading is the key to lots of things. And I used to remember these little phrases. And she was no, not a wise woman beyond compare, because she was one of the wisest women in the world, but she didn't go around like as if she was terribly clever. She was just clever. The thing that really used to hit me, that every now and again, this was before I went to school, and when I went to school, and I came home from school, the little school was a, a very small Catholic school in the town, and only had 32 pupils in it, and two nuns. Every day I'd come home and he'd be a man, always a man, never a woman, I, I, I do recall, who would be at the back door talking to my mum and she'd be filling a billy can he's got with either soup or stew or something because he was on his way trying to find a job and he was hungry. And I used to say, what, what, what's all this going on about? And she just used to try and explain it to me. He can't get work. He's a human being. There's no religion in it. She didn't use religion. She just used this as a humanitarian, but very strong. And I said, what would happen if you didn't feed him? And my mother said, well, if he hasn't got any dignity or if he's got all the necessity instead, he'd go and ask somebody else. But he shouldn't have to. And all this sort of stuff. Now, that's when I first began to say, what's all that? Even as a little boy, I remember I used to get bothered by this and I would keep on asking my mother why well, what's this what's it all about and that was when I for instance my mother used to tell me things about Jack Lang I never heard of Jack Lang until I was three and a half and he was the premier of New South Wales and how he was mismanaging the economy and the rich people were getting everything and the poor people were getting nothing and all this sort of stuff now that's how it started there was a lot more to it than that I have to say I do remember, and I think I was very lucky for this. My mother was not a Catholic. If anything, she was Jewish. But she wasn't Jewish either because she, her father was Jewish, but her mother wasn't. But it didn't mean that very much to her. But my father came from an old English Catholic mob. And, you know, for all of the years that I went to church, this is from when I was, I don't know, four, I never, ever once understood a word because for two reasons the silly priest said everything with his back to us <laughs> that was the first thing you couldn't see him and we didn't have microphones in those days he, and he was Irish so he had a double reason and the third reason was most of his stuff was in Latin and if it wasn't in Latin it was in some other language which pretended to be English but I didn't understand it and all of the impetus that I got I'd call it impetus, but it was sort of affective religion. I got from the two nuns in the school. And I, I wasn't burdened down with, you must do this. You must believe that. Well, they were important elements that, that stood by me as I grew older and had to make up my mind about a few things in the ch Catholic Church and so on. And I came to Melbourne when I was 11. What brought you to Melbourne? My father decided because he was poor, he didn't think he'd ever get a trip out of Australia because he couldn't afford it. So he decided to join the army and go for a trip. For how long? Well, we came to Melbourne in 1944, so 
It would have been about 1941, 42 that he joined up. He was overseas. He went to uh, the Middle East. He was in Israel. And then he came home. He was in New Guinea. Uh, I had a cousin whose family lived in uh, Tok, and he was 22. And he got caught by the Japs at Balik Papan and was beheaded on the beach. And that's something that hit me like nobody's business. I just couldn't believe it. What did you want to do when you left school? Oh, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a priest. Why? What did you believe a priest would do, would be? I'll try and describe it to you. It wasn't what I believed at all. It's what I saw. There was a priest in the, the little housing commission place that my family lived in in West Preston, and we used to go up to church there. And the, and the priest there was just a, a roughneck old priest, Australian. He loved playing cards and all that. But one thing he did... And he made me part of this. Uh, every Saturday morning, except for the, when he was on holidays in a way, he would go down to three butchers that he knew in the area. I don't know whether they were Catholics or not, but he'd get from each of them a big box of cut meat that they'd have on it, ten chops, five chops. This, And then he'd go to the fruiterers and get some. Then he'd go to the bakers. And, and he'd put them all in the boot of his car. Uh, you do this on a Saturday morning. Uh, well, I used to go down to his place about 8 o'clock. I don't know how it happened, but this, uh, it became a, a real friendship thing. We'd go back to his, the, the priest's house, and we put all this stuff on the table, and then he said, now, I've got to give some of these t- to Jan, and she's got five kids, so we put, put five chops there, do this, and put her parcel there. And he'd end up having something like, 12 or 15 parcels and I know that because we went to 12 to 15 places each Saturday not always the same ones and I would say to him what are you doing this for? he said are they hungry? oh yeah Uh, and I would say that's not a good enough reason there has to be some other reason but I let it go because he had religious motives as well but he just said well when a person's sick, the first thing you give them is not a lecture on health, but medicine, and so on and so forth. That was that was what it was on. And, and then I go to another place, and I, what are you giving it to this lady for? Oh, her husband's in jail. He's done this. He's done that. And in those days, there wasn't the social services that you. you we're talking about the end of the depression, the beginning of the Blooming War, when you couldn't buy anything, especially peace. And and I, for about four years, I did this with this man. And he would have been one of the roughest, toughest, kindest men I ever met. And he thought this was the way. One ought to go. His sermons were terrible. <laughs> But who cared? Because what he did on Sunday morning was a sermon for a whole week. And in a sense, he was continuing on what your mother did. Yes, I'd never connected it up, but as you say it, uh, it, that was the imprint that was in my brain anyway, that uh, these people needed help and we we should. Now, that started it, the priesthood bit. Of course, he talked now and again. He said, oh, you know, you might make a nice priest. I don't know. I don't know whether you've got any brains or anything, but uh, I said, I haven't got any money. He said, oh, we can get by without that. The, one of the big things that in that formative time, I was in Melbourne only about three months, and I was um, won a scholarship 
total education costs given to become a member of St. Patrick's Cathedral Choir because I had perfect pitch. And I didn't know I had perfect pitch, but they said, sing middle C, and I could sing just like that sort of stuff. And I never knew what middle C was. (laughs) I really got to love music. I got to love religious music. I got to love the drama that was going on. I tried to, even as a boy, I was trying to understand it all the time. And I was asking questions and all the jolly rest of it. Buy a little book. And then went to Parade College, which was um, a pretty good school in those days. And every Friday night, another fellow and I, from the time we were about 13 till we were 17, which is when we left there and went off to our various things, we'd go down to the public library every Friday night and stay there till midnight, reading books. How it all came together for me was that during that time, the five years, I read almost every book that was in the store library, which is pretty big, it had massive millions of people, on Australian Aborigines, because... They lived in the cowshed just down from our little cottage in Finlay, New South Wales. And I knew them. And my mother said, oh, you shouldn't talk with them. Why? Oh, they're dirty. And they were dirty, of course. And all those. And I said, but they're nice people. Okay. And she let me go because I, she, she, her, it was that I'd made up my mind. I'd be their friend. A follow-on from that was... I read most of the old classic books that old settlers had ever written. Edward Kerr is a famous one. In this town, you, you either know that, that Edward Kerr's name was should be written here in every flaming street, but uh, he was extraordinary, and he wrote diaries, and I've read them all. There was a Scot who wrote about Gippsland, and, uh, and I read a whole lot of... And I had an idea of... I was working up in my head something about Aborigines and why is this so... Why are they being treated like this? Because in those days, you would never see an Aborigine here in Smith Street. We weren't allowed in the place. Now, that was another element that became very potent for me. When I was 17, 18, I got my matric, and I decided I'd give um, training in the priesthood a go. And that's the book uh, analyses that and my difficulty with it. It was, it was quite incredible, the difficulty. Struggles against the hierarchy in the church was that started no, from that time? Uh, no, no, no. I, I became strongly against a lot of things of the hierarchy, but I learned it by discovery and working with them and seeing how crazy they could be. Now, the thing that really got me when I went to the seminary was the closed system. It was not a place for learning; it was a place for rote uh, repetition. But that was a lot of education in those Well, of course, years. It was. of course it was, but I noticed it there. Uh, you, you weren't ever allowed to question anything. You were told, this, now here's the proof, and here are the opponents, and this is how you answer the opponents. And I would say, but where did you get that from? You don't ask those questions. I had that difficulty, and I picked it up so early in my life. Get you into trouble? quite constantly actually but I kept it to myself to a degree I'd go home and talk about it and my mother would wonder what I'm on about but it was it was my way of um, coping with deductive learning and inductive learning and inductive learning is the only way to go in other words believe what you like but be prepared to be proven wrong did you go up to the Aboriginal areas oh yes 
When I was in uh, secondary, uh, I spent a couple of holidays. I used to deliver papers and save up money. I'd catch a, a train ticket that would take me to Alice Springs, for instance. I'd pick up priests who belonged to religious orders who lived out, and I'd go and stay somewhere for three or four weeks. Always be going out learning or wanting just just listening, listening. Don't tell them everything. Just listen, because they had more to tell, more to talk about than I did. I did the same when I was in the seminary. I I didn't go on holidays all over the world like everybody else, but I, I went up into Aboriginal places. I, I particularly had an interest in Northwest Australia because I came across Aborigines who saw me and I was the first white person they'd ever seen. From the very beginning, I was interested in Aboriginal studies, which meant I was interested in human affairs of this nature that had a cultural complexity about them. That I had to understand something of the, of the way people lived, breathed and thought, and it was different from me. So I was beginning to move into, uh, without at the time knowing it, but knowing it now, of really deciding that you had to be an anthropologist to cope with all this. That was the word that came to me, but much later. I wasn't even ordained a priest when I'm talking, when this was growing. I was the seminarian. I spent little time following football because I wanted to spend time reading on this sort of stuff. Anybody would think I was terribly different, but I, in a way I wasn't, but a lot of people might have thought I was. I have no idea. But um, anyway, I did become ordained, and I went to Moody Ponds. And, and, and in the first few years, uh, the work I was slowly being put into was radio and television for all sorts of reasons, which I won't go into. But um, I, I couldn't abide television because you had to speak highly intelligently and quite sincerely to nothing. Somebody's there who wasn't was bored stiff with what you were saying, and you had to pretend and always smiling and, and learn all the tricks. And I used to do epilogue, for instance. The, I got trained how to do that. You might remember it. I don't know, but it was on Channel Nine, I think. Every night they they had a ten minute blurb on, from religious places, and I used to get prizes for doing what I did and things, saying things, and I'd do things that were. A little bit outrageous, and that was a clue that sort of gave me. You go a little bit further than you think people expect you to go, and then you'll make them think. Because the important thing is to make them think, all that sort of stuff. Well, now eventually, I had to learn the trade of being a priest. A lot of discipline for you. Oh yeah, there was discipline. I mean, there would have been discipline in any thing that I would have picked up. I think. I mean, I could have got easily gone into law. There's a heavy discipline in law. There's no doubt about all that. Or I might have even gone into medicine. I was able to do these sort of things because I, was, I had the marks to, to be able to push it. But no, I didn't. I didn't want to go that way. Uh, the next big thing that happened to me was I, I, I'd been ordained about six years or so, and I wrote a little pamphlet on Aborigines called My Fellow Australian, and it won Australian Prize for the pamphlet of the year, in the, among the Catholics, of course. And that gave me a name. About that time, uh, a little bit after, I'm not easy into the time frame, we got a new archbishop here. We had a fellow called Justin Simmons who came in after Mannix, this man was James Knox, 
and he was a, a, a rather simple sort of a man, but he really wasn't. He was as cunning as a cartload of monkeys. Uh, I had been asked by the Jesuits, would I do a chapter in a book that they're putting up on what Jesuits might be able to do over the next 50 years? They worked on uh, trade unions and dispossessed people and poor people and refugees and all the rest of it and Aborigines was the other one and they had nobody who could write on Aborigines and uh, they said we, we'd like you to do it we've, we've read your, your pamphlet and we think this is the, the, the sort of way we'd like to think we could write so, so I wrote a chapter so Knox was given the book, so the book like this and he went through it and he looked at it and he said, uh, uh, Jesuits on this, Father so-and-so, S.J., Jesuit. Father so-and-so, S.J. And went down to, he got down near the bottom of this. Father Hilton Deacon, no S.J. That's one of my priests. And he closed the book. Now the next is, 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 is fascinating. He had great contacts in Rome. And the Roman authorities had said to him, we think it's about time you had a big ecclesiastical function in Australia, so we're going to have an International Eucharistic Congress in your city of Melbourne in 1973. Now, this was in 1969 when I was in the office, and he said to me, you know that I come from West Australia, don't you? I said, yes, you came from New Norcia, didn't you? He said, oh, yes, you know that much. And he said, well, now, read your thing out. I want to do something to put the Aborigines on the world stage. But I need somebody to have the qualifications to do it. I'm asking you to, to, to step in. I said, what were you talking about? He said, you'll do no good until you go to university and get yourself a degree in anthropology. He was a great friend of Michael uh, Chamberlain, who was the, ch uh, the Chancellor of Monash. He had spoken to Michael, and Michael said, well, we, we, we can get him into... We've got a, an anthropology course here in the arts department, and it's a good one. So that's what happened. I was moved over to a place called Glenaris, and for six years I got a, um, a bit of the first year of, of university. I supposed to have had four subjects. They said only two, and the other two we'll take for granted because you've done seven years in the seminary. I said, seven years worth two. I said, well, well but I took it on, and I, I was there for six years, and at the end of the six years, I gained a doctorate in uh, philosophy and anthropology, the first Catholic priest in Australia ever so to do, which is itself an extraordinary claim to fame. But the first year was easy because um, I, I, I wanted to specialise fieldwork study in Australian Aborigines. That was accepted. But then they found that I'd read so many of the books. So it was almost fall guy stuff. I started loving this, the university, but I, you know, some of the people I would have said, oh, the crazy people. But it, it was a new world. It was just uh, the intellectual world upside down. I loved it very much. Uh, and I had to think about a lot of things that had appeared to me to be right and true and ended up becoming, well other things instead. For me, that was a major turning point of, of a fundamental t type. I gained the doctorate in 1974 or 5, I think it was, 
then I had to decide what was I going to do. I was offered jobs teaching at a, a couple of universities from men and women whom I knew, who, who were academics and said, we've got a place for you and you've got to start somewhere. And I said, look, I want to think about it. And uh, eventually uh, it, it sort of... I had, for instance, for this Congress, had organised and written an Aboriginal mass, language-wise. And I didn't just use language, but I used the mental imagery of the Aboriginal way of saying things, so it came out differently. We celebrated it at the Maya Music Bowl in 1973, first time in world history as regards the Australian Aborigines. And then the bishops decided to sit on it because they couldn't cope with it. They wanted Latin back to the people, all the rest and all that sort of stuff. And I said, no, no, you've got to think in another way. You don't own the mass, you only think you do. I used to do a little bit of lecturing. I lectured for some years in the graduate faculty at Melbourne University for people who were doing postgraduate courses, MAs and even PhDs, with, uh, if, even if it only had a tad of anthropology in it, I used to examine it and so on, that sort of stuff. And I did that this sort of thing for quite a few years, nine, eight or nine years, until I got too old for it taught in the Yarra Theological Union one subject for, for any men or women who were going off to be missionaries and I wanted them to have a relativist capacity to be prepared to listen and not just preach. We haven't talked yet about your time with Caritas. Caritas was a great occasion for me because it gave me entree to world conferences, uh, to people who really... For instance, I went to Rwanda, I mean, this is in the book, and spent a couple of weeks in Rwanda, the week that the massacre ended. And it was one of the worst times in my life. You'd go into a little village where there used to be seven or eight houses and you'd see five or six bodies, children's bodies, but no heads. You'd find them somewhere else in the place. This sort of stuff. And you, you wanted to throw up and... And that was not uncommon. Well, I went to Soweto and I couldn't get over the depravity that was, of poverty that was the way. Women would get up at three o'clock in the morning to catch a bus to go into Joburg, as they used to call it, go and earn about $5 or what the equivalent was and then come home that night and pick up a kid, little local creche. And the creche was just a tin shed, which during the day was 120 degrees in the heat. And the toilet, that was a gutter just out there. And the beds were in tin shacks all over that part of Africa. When I went to Uganda, Rwanda, Bujumbura, Burundi, I saw all of this awful stuff. It's far enough away from us to be able to speak about it a bit more comfortably, whereas East Timor, it's, it's close at hand, it's so close, but it's just the same sort of thing. Challenges for you within Caritas? I would, for instance, there might be something in a political statement that the bishops might want the bishops to sign and I wouldn't sign it. Uh, it might be on equality or the place of women in uh, this and that or what do you do when uh, you encourage abortion and etc etc and all this type of a whole pile of things 
that would come up and I would say, no, no, this is not what we're about. Caritas is such that when you meet a hungry man, you don't preach the gospel to him, you give him a feed. Or if you meet a sick person, you give us a medicine. That's the first thing you do. The way the bishops were talking, you're going to get some of their wisdom. And the other thing about that, Jan, is that a lot of that wisdom about social justice changes from time to time. There's nothing irrevocable about it. And that's an intellectual capacity that I had to cope with. If you're supposed to be preaching the, the eternal truths of the gospel, how does this change all the time? So you've got to have a theory human change in human affairs and you can't get away from it we got it wrong you've been listening to emeritus bishop hilton deacon talking about his early years a few more years on that he's talking about his book bonded through tragedy united in hope which is the catholic church and east timor struggle for independence a memoir it's published by garrett publishing And the East Timorese part of his life will be on the program next week. So if you'd like to have a look for that book, Bonded Through Tragedy, United in Hope, The Catholic Church and East Timor's Struggle for Independence, a memoir by Hilton Deacon, published by Garrett Publications. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Next on Tuesday, Home Time, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, and we'll be looking at Pacific challenges for the new French president. But first, Nick... The new president, not everyone's happy. Well, one of the features of the French presidential elections held over two rounds in April and May was a relatively low turnout and also that the the two mainstream centre-right, centre-left parties, the French Socialist Party and Les Republicains, the Republicans, uh, which is the main sort of coalition party equivalent to ours, both did very badly. Socialist Party candidate uh, Benoit Hamon only got 6 7% of the first-round vote. And that was a reflection of the bad standing of the Socialist Party. François Hollande, the outgoing Socialist president who was elected in 2012, decided not to stand again for a second term. That's the first time under the Fifth Republic that a president hasn't gone for two terms. Um, and it just shows the low standing that the Socialist Party has been held in. As they've tried to manage the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and the sort of tensions over the future of the European Union. The same problem, though, with the the main uh, Conservative Party, uh, the Republicans. François Fillon, former French Prime Minister, uh, was the lead candidate, um, beating off Alain Juppé and uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, other main contenders for the position. But his campaign was blown out of the water 
by allegations of corruption, gave his wife a 900000 a year job and his children jobs with little evidence that they'd actually gone and done any work. His campaign never recovered from that. So you had the spectacle that new political forces took to the stage. We've seen this in America with uh, the campaign on the left by Bernie Sanders, the campaign on the right by Donald Trump, similar sort of situation in France. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, long-standing left-winger, had been in alliance with the Communist Party in the past uh, in a sort of left front, but now ran with his own movement called La France Insoumise, uh, got a, a good vote in the first round. Similarly, uh, the National Front, the long-standing neo-fascist party uh, led by Marine Le Pen, uh, did very well in the first round, entered the, the runoff, um, having beaten uh, the mainstream parties into submission. The other candidate, obviously, Emmanuel Macron, a former minister in the Hollande government but not a member of the Socialist Party, uh, ran his own team called En Marche uh, Forward and won. Neoliberal. Yeah, he comes out of a a classic tradition of uh, the sort of collapse of social democracy, the Blairite policies that we've seen, uh, Bill Clinton, indeed our own Labour Party. We've seen uh, since the 1990s, but particularly since the financial crisis, that social democratic parties, parties of the the centre and broad left, have essentially become managers of austerity. Hollande appointed Macron as uh, his Minister for Economy early in the administration, but Macron soon left the position after only 18 months. But during that time, he promoted policies together with the Prime Minister Manuel Valls um, that were deeply reactionary in terms of uh, their attack on trade union rights, their attempts to slash the public service, uh, to promote austerity for welfare recipients, um, the sort of agenda that you've seen often from parties like the Democratic Leadership Council, Bill Clinton era in the 1990s, Tony Blair's Labour Party and, and so on. Macron comes from a very privileged background. He uh, was a graduate of the École Normale d'Administration, the ENA, which is sort of like a training school for elite public servants. You know, senior public servants go through the ENA and, you know, graduates of the school are known as ENARC, and they staff the higher reaches of the French state, both the privatised companies, um, banks, uh, public institutions and the public service, the French bureaucracy. So he comes out of that sort of tradition and he went to work for Rothschilds as a banker and so on. So he has a long history of, you know, socially progressive but deeply reactionary in terms of uh, attitudes to the economy, to working class rights, uh, to industrial relations and so on. And as Minister of Economy under Hollande, he was... um, strongly criticised by the left, and now uh, his new movement presents itself as neither left nor right, but forging ahead. Um, And that sort of rhetoric makes most workers suspicious, because it it, it covers up uh, some pretty reactionary sort of policies. So what we're going to focus on today is his possible impact on the Pacific. How did his position impact on the Pacific when he was part of the Along government? didn't really play a role in foreign policy and one of the key concerns from people in the Pacific I've spoken to is that he doesn't really know very much about the Pacific Islands. The focus for the uh, Macron presidency will be very much on domestic issues, obviously economic issues and employment, concerns about terrorism. You know, France is still under a national emergency that was declared since the Nice massacre by Islamist uh, uh, terrorists last year. 
there's all sorts of domestic questions about France's relationship with the European Union, particularly in the light of the British withdrawal. How does France position itself in relationship to Germany? So the government, you know, is is still a long way from being formed. There's elections for the National Assembly in June. So the Pacific is very low on the agenda. Who's going to be advising him? His uh, overseas minister has been appointed, um, a woman named Annick Girardin. She comes from Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, which is the French uh, dependency in the Atlantic. France has overseas collectivities, they call them, or dependencies in every ocean of the world. And there's a tiny uh, dependency off the coast of uh, Canada, and Girardin has been appointed. Uh, so people in the Pacific wonder you know, what the hell she might know about uh, the condition for Pacific Islanders. Um, and uh, she thus far has basically reiterated the sort of statements that came out of uh, the Hollande government about pledging support for development, uh, for greater connectivity between the overseas territories and the mainland. But it's very early days yet, and the, the formation of a, of, of a government after the National Assembly elections, which are held in mid-June, will really tell us a bit more about the sort of policies that uh, France will be putting forward. Um, Macron himself is, is interesting. During the election campaign, he caused a stir when he travelled to Algeria, criticised colonialism as, and I quote, a crime against humanity, and he decried uh, the Algerian war as barbarism. Now, he's right on both counts. I mean, the war uh, in Algeria between 1954 and 1962 was barbaric. Over a million people died as France tried to hold on to its colony. Um, It was seen as part of French Algeria, and not only the deployment of military troops to put down the National Liberation Front, the popular rebellion for independence, but also the the role played by French settlers. And there were many millions of people there where French settlers launched a campaign uh, led by the uh, secret army organisation, the OAS, a campaign of terrorism and bombings and torture and so on. So it's a very bitter and vicious war, and barbarism is a very good term to, to use. The problem is, though, that that Macron's analysis of colonialism looks to history. He says, in the bad old days, France was a colonial power. And the problem is that colonialism is very much entrenched in 21st century France. The French Republic is based on the fact that it has colonies, they call them collectivities, in every ocean of the world today, from Réunion in the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Territories of New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Wallace Futuna, Saint-Pierre Miquelon in the Caribbean, Guadeloupe, Martinique. So all around the world, France is still an imperial power, a colonial power. And when French politicians talk about colonialism, they talk about 18th century, 19th century, French colonialism, the bad old days. So Macron doesn't use the same sort of language to talk about contemporary politics. And that's a problem. And I think more cynical people would say that, that his comments about Algeria were in some ways to cause trouble within the National Front, the main contender for the presidency, Marine Le Pen, been trying to distance the National Front from its xenophobic, its racist, uh, its anti-Semitic past. Indeed, her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who founded the National Front many years ago, was a veteran of the Algeria War, indeed was accused of uh, torture and human rights abuses during the war, and was a noted anti-Semite, Holocaust denier and so on. And Le Pen uh, Jr., uh, his daughter, actually kicked Jean-Marie Le Pen out of the party 
in an attempt to modernise it. And we've seen attempts by the the far right to modernise their image across Europe and present themselves as modern democratic parties, despite the roots of of racism, of uh, anti-Islamic racism, anti-Jewish racism, anti-Semitism, that is at, at the heart of their project. Part of the the tactics, I think, frankly, of bringing up the Algerian war during the campaign was to highlight the National Front's patriotism, its uh, anti-Arab racism, its uh, history of uh, links to uh, the torture and, and mayhem, the barbarism of the Algerian war, and to cause splits between the, the loyalists to the old man Le Pen and his daughter who's trying to renovate the National Front. It's good to see a French president say that uh, colonialism is a crime against humanity. I agree with him, and I look forward to him saying it about the, the current French status in the Pacific. You're not going to hold your breath? I'm not going to hold my breath. I think that, that um, the French see their remaining uh, dependencies, as we've talked about on this program many times, as uh, you know, maintaining France as a mid-sized global power. It's not as large as the United States, um, but it certainly has military bases in every ocean of the world. It is a global power, even if a, a mid-level one. And at a time that the, there's debate about reforming the United Nations Security Council, there's debate about nuclear weapons, France maintains its status because of its links to the EU and because of its overseas territories. And to give them up in the 21st century really raises questions about the, the French Republican tradition. The French don't want to let go of their colonies. And the power of those, they might only be small islands, some of them, but the, the, the power that they have in a, in a world sense of, of holding onto those islands. Very important. I mean, uh, it's expensive for t- French taxpayers. You know, there are massive subsidies um, provided by French taxpayers uh, to keep uh, people living in the, the colonies uh, in the manner to which they're accustomed. There's a lot of inequalities, though, and many ordinary grassroots people in uh, the Canaks of New Caledonia, the Tahitian, the Maui people of French Polynesia, don't necessarily benefit from the money that's pumped in. There's a lot of boomerang aid that goes back through spending on public servants at enormous salaries, through spending on the French military, through payments to French uh, companies. And indeed, those companies often gain the benefits. Um, And so you see that with the nickel mining in New Caledonia, New Caledonia... Um, has enormous strategic reserves of nickel, cobalt and other other materials. The main company, SLN, Société Le Nickel, has uh, a quarter of its investment from the French state. So there's a a crucial role for state intervention uh, to maintain this at the same time that taxpayers pay the bills. Uh, Ordinary working people are paying for French colonialism uh, to the benefit of a small minority. That sort of inequality is is a matter of concern for people, particularly in the French Pacific and also the Caribbean, who um, see large amounts of money sloshing around but don't get the benefits in terms of housing, employment, welfare, all the the benefits of modern life. Self-determination for the people in those areas, where is it going to go to? Well, we're moving towards significant decisions. New Caledonia, the um, French collectivity just off the coast of Queensland, is moving towards a referendum on self-determination late next year, maybe October, November 2018. Uh, This is the culmination of the Namir Accord process, which has been going for nearly 20 years since 1998. Some of the leading independence forces in New Caledonia said, uh, look, Let's focus on the referendum. Let's ignore the presidential elections. Whoever wins, they're going to be wanting to keep New Caledonia within the French Republic. During the election campaign, Marine Le Pen said that very clearly. She said that she wanted France to uh, um, remain as the colonial power. Macron 
said the sort of things that Francois Hollande's outgoing president had said, that France will accompany the people of New Caledonia towards their decision and we would respect their decision. So there's a bit more mealy-mouthed sort of rhetoric, but it's pretty clear, and Macron has made it clear, that they see that they would like France to, to be uh, still administering um, New Caledonia after its referendum. The largest pro-independence party, Union Caledonienne, essentially called for a boycott of the presidential elections, and that was seen in very low turnout. Um, and you saw that in French Polynesia as well, where Oscar Temeru, the leading independence leader, said, uh, why bother? It's a French election. It's not nothing to do with us. And so the turnout in French Polynesia was 38 39% of voters turned out in the first round to vote for uh, the ca- range of candidates, uh, 11 candidates standing in the first round. And then in the runoff between uh, Macron and Le Pen, the two top candidates, there was still a, a very low turnout. Only uh, 46% turned out for the runoff. So more than half of the people of French Polynesia didn't bother voting. Similar figures in um, uh, New Caledonia. Overall, 48% of eligible voters bothered to vote. That's 7% lower than happened in 2012 for the last election. So it's a drop-off. Um, despite the significance of whoever's elected in government in France will have a major say over the referendum next year, still, once again, more than one in two people didn't vote. And because New Caledonia's population includes a large uh, group of people of European heritage, French, uh, as well as Wallisian Islanders and the indigenous Kanaks, it was striking that in many areas where Kanaks dominate, the voting turnout was much lower. So in the first round, um, in the Loyalty Islands, which have got 97% Kanak population, only 9% of eligible voters turned out to vote on the island of Mare, only 10% on the island of Uvea, uh, 14% on Lifu, a really low turnout. On the mainland, um, in the north, where many Kanaks live, between 20 and 30% of people turned out, depending on which town you're looking at. It was much higher in the, the, the capital, uh, Numia was a 62, 63% turnout. So uh, obviously in the European areas, people were more interested in the French elections. But in the Kanak-dominated areas, the top was high 20s and the bottom was, was less than 10% of people, less than 1 in 10 people bothered voting. And so that shows both a combination of this boycott call from the leading independence party, but also, frankly, a disdain for politics. And you saw that in France with the collapse of the vote for the main candidates, uh, François Fillon and uh, Benoît Armand of the Socialist Party, who uh, did really badly in the first round and didn't even make the runoff, which was with these two new forces. Have you spoken to people in the Connect communities to find out how they're feeling now? Well, people are still waiting for the second shoe to drop, which is the National Assembly elections. France has a series of votes uh, right through this year. The first one was the presidential runoff. In June, uh, coming up soon, the first round of the National Assembly elections will be held. And then in September, the elections for the French Senate, the upper house. And New Caledonia, French Polynesia, all the overseas collectivities are represented in the French Parliament, the French National Assembly and the Senate. Uh, New Caledonia has two seats. Uh, uh, French Polynesia has two uh, Wilson Fortuna won in the National Assembly. Out of how many? Oh, out of 580-something. So, you know, the overseas territories. But they have a voice. And those positions are often quite important 
in that the people elected there serve as an interlocutor with the French government. You know, they get flown to Paris all the time on, on the French taxpayer's dollar. They sit in key debates. They sit in key parliamentary commissions. And just by the very fact of being in Paris a lot of the time, they interact with other politicians. So they have an influence in the way things are going. And you saw that one of the current members of the National Assembly, elected at the last elections, uh, Philippe Gomez, is leader of the Caledonian Ensemble Party. It's an anti-independence party. It's the leading political force on the conservative side of politics in New Caledonia. And for the second round, it was interesting, given that the runoff was between Macron, who'd been a Socialist Party minister, and uh, the National Front, you know, this extreme right-wing party led by Marine Le Pen, uh, he called for a vote for Macron. Many of his conservatives, conservative leaders on the same anti-independence side, called for a vote for Le Pen which quite shocked uh, many Canucks. Uh, the tradition has been uh, to hold up uh, you know, Republican values of liberty, equality, fraternity, everything that the National Front stands against with its racism, its, its anti-Arab racism, its Islamic hatred and so on. But key anti-independence leaders uh, on the right, Galliano, Harold Martin, Sonia Bacchus, either explicitly or implicitly called for a vote for Le Pen. And Gomez is positioning himself, I think, to be the interlocutor with Macron so that he'll be a key player over the next year in the lead-up to the referendum as the incoming French government elected after the June you know, National Assembly elections will um, set the terms for the referendum, set the question for the referendum. People are positioning themselves. The key Canac party called for a boycott, saying, you know, it's got nothing to do with us. There's a split, however, on the right as to how you relate to uh, a French president that says he's neither of the left nor the right. Just explain the, the elections that are coming up in June and how that works, whoever, whoever gets uh, the majority in that, how that works out with the president, who, who has the most power. The French system is a bit different, to, certainly different to the Anglo, you know, Australia, British, New Zealand system, but also the American system. Like the Americans, they have a very strong presidency. French president is commander of the armed forces, uh, has enormous executive power, can uh, propose laws, can uh, uh, declare war. You know, the French president is, is very powerful. But there is a government with a prime minister and ministers elected, and they come from the National Assembly. So that's a bit more in the British tradition. Can bring in people from outside, but a lot of ministers traditionally are from uh, the National Assembly. Obviously, whoever gains the majority in the National Assembly can uh, form a government if they've got an overwhelming majority. So there have been situations in the past where you've had, say, a leftish president like François Mitterrand and a conservative government, conservative prime minister and government, and the French call that cohabitation. So you have a situation where back in the 1980s, uh, you know, François Mitterrand uh, was the Socialist Party president, but Jacques Chirac was a conservative prime minister, and Chirac, between 86 and 88, uh, used that to embarrass the president, to cause problems for him and so on. For the Canucks, that culminated in the Uvea massacre when uh, Chirac and Mitterrand were both contesting the presidency. It's a bit uncertain, but it's likely that the, the same thing will arise, that Macron will find himself with Prime Minister, not of his choosing, after the elections. And that's because the French Republicans and the French Socialist Party did very badly in the presidential election, but they still got it, you know, ranging between uh, 7 and 19% and of the vote. They are much better implanted in the, 
you know, local constituencies uh, in in the the departments and the communes uh, where people are elected to the National Assembly. And so the Socialist Party will do better than they did during the presidential election simply because they've got some good candidates at local level. Macron's movement, uh, La République en Marche, as he now calls it, newly formed, has only been going less than a year, and he just doesn't have the mechanical infrastructure to run right across the country. Indeed, he's not even standing candidates in the overseas territories in um, New Caledonia and French Polynesia. His movement, La République en Marche, has not uh, endorsed any candidates. So the traditional parties, both Socialist and uh, the Republicans, the main centre-right party, will be you know, picking up seats um, by default. So you're going to see most likely that the National Assembly will have a range of people standing and Macron won't control the government. Possibly he gets a majority, but, but doubtful. That means he's going to have a difficult four years. And what about Le Pen's party? She'll do very well. Um, one of the things that's, that's happened is that the defeat of Le Pen in the presidential elections has slowed, but not smashed, the right of the party. And uh, one of the phenomena, one of the reasons that she did well was that she tapped a level of discontent from ordinary working-class voters and uh, uh, the middle-class uh, bourgeois, fearful of Islam and terrorism, but certainly concerned that globalisation and the European Union has led to austerity. And one of the things I think we'll see is that the Macron presidency is going to continue that austerity. You know, he's a former banker. Uh, he's an anarch. He's a, a man of the globalised elite, as Marine Le Pen criticised him for. People have rejected that sort of politics. They rejected it under Hillary Clinton in America, although the French system and the French history is obviously different to America. You know, there is a similar level of, of anxiety about the way in which the European Union's austerity policies have been transmitted to national level. And so Le Pen is well positioned to capitalise on anger. Macron also benefited from the fact that there was no left-wing candidate standing in the presidential elections. It was him or the National Front, and many people who support democratic values held their nose and voted for Macron rather than to let the National Front win, which would have been a total disaster for France and for Europe. That's not going to be the case during the National Assembly elections and indeed during the four years of his first five years of his presidency. You know, La France Insoumise, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, is going to be leading a massive campaign of uh, resistance to public service cuts, to welfare cuts, to greater austerity, to uh, industrial relations laws, which are going to disadvantage trade unions. So there's going to be a lot of fight in around economic issues and Macron will be squeezed between a resurgent left that did very well during the elections and the resurgent right, which um, lost the presidential elections but is certainly not defeated. And what could that increased austerity, if it comes through, mean for the people in the Pacific? The Pacific is funded by French taxpayers. It costs a lot of money to maintain France's overseas empire. You know, France puts more than a billion dollars a year into New Caledonia the same amount of money, more than a billion dollars a year, into French Polynesia. Now, these are small countries, you know, 260,000 people in New Caledonia. And as I mentioned before, a lot of this is boomerang aid. It flows back to uh, small sectors of the public service, of the business community, of uh, the military and so on, rather than benefiting grassroots people. There are enormous disparities between French citizens living in Namia 
and connects living in the rural areas, um, just in terms of access to electricity, access to running water, employment statistics for young people, all those sort of questions that are basic to every economy between the centre and the periphery. You know, Australia has the same debates. America has the same debates. China has the same debates. You know, living in the cities, you get better services than people in rural areas. So do you move to the cities? Do you stay? You know, all those sort of classic capitalist development debates uh, are played out in France as well. And for the periphery, people living literally on the other side of the world from mainland France, they're often forgotten. And that's one of the complaints from, say, the government of French Polynesia that supported Macron in his candidacy. Don't forget us. You know, Francois Hollande travelled to the Pacific in 2016 and pledged, you know, subsidies for electricity prices because electricity is deeply expensive in uh, French Polynesia given um, the massive rise in the cost of fossil fuels. Now, will the French government uh, facing austerity continue to subsidise the overseas territories at the same rate? Someone's got to pay for it. And uh, for French taxpayers, those sort of debates are coming clearer and clearer. How do you maintain an economic policy that disadvantages ordinary working people? That sort of debate is, is flourishing. Do we need to wait till the results of the June elections? Yeah, the June elections will be important. It'll tell us the balance of forces in some ways between the parties to see how much the Socialist Party and the Republicans can bounce back from their significant defeat during the presidential elections, where Marine Le Pen and the National Front maintains its polls, whether they drop back or whether they can surge in some areas, winning representation into the National Assembly. The strength of the left, whether Jean-Luc Mélenchon can maintain the vote that he got for his personal presidential campaign, whether they can play out on the ground. Votes are important, but also I think it's how people react in the streets, how people react in their workplaces and so on. This is going to go on for a few years. And because France is such a central part of the European Union, it's also affected by the things happening around us. What happens with Britain's role within the EU impacts very much on France and Germany as the two central pillars of the EU project. Macron is very much committed to maintaining the EU, what will happen with stuff happening around, with Donald Trump basically ditching NATO pledges uh, under Article 5, not guaranteeing that the US will come to to the rescue of the EU in a military sense, with Britain uh, restructuring its relationship with the EU. Um, We're going into interesting times, and for the French people, that's certainly the case. For the people of the Pacific, as I say, their low voter turnout shows that they feel this is France's business. The question is, how will they mobilise over the next year, particularly in New Caledonia, to address the question of self-determination? And that's journalist and researcher extraordinaire, Nick McClellan. I don't think there's anything about the Pacific that Nick can't tell you about. A wealth of information. It's um, nine minutes past five on Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Next week is the last program before the big Radiothon week here at 3CR. So there's one more. And then the week after that, it's Radiothon, Radiothon, Radiothon. And asking all our regular and irregular listeners to help us keep this wonderful radio station on air for yet another year. We've been here since 1976. It's a pretty good record. Let's keep it going and depending on listeners to make sure that we do stay on air. It's um, the 13th of June. Lucky, lucky 13th of June for Tuesday Home Times Radiothon. I'll just give you a bit more information.
3CR annual Radiothon is almost here. And in 2017, 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. And all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 03 9419 8377. Or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR, Radio for Change. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. This morning I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University and a member of Hands Off Syria. And the first topic was Trump, both prior to his first overseas visit and what the visit tells us. Tim, before jetting off, the troubles were mounting up, bodies falling by the wayside and inquiries mounting up. Where does that take us? Well, it's a very erratic administration, isn't it? On the one hand, he said a lot of things that he would do, particularly in relation to foreign policy, which he has done virtually the reverse of. And others have said that um, really that's normal in U.S. politics, that Obama also said he was withdrawing from the entire theatre of war in the Middle East. You can bank on that, and he did the, the opposite too. So Trump, in a sense, you might say that he's following a tradition of populism, talking about something which has some credibility and then public credibility and then doing the reverse. But he's also very erratic, so it's, uh, it's very difficult to predict what's going on there. And he's come under attack from effectively a, an important part of the U.S. establishment in relation to what they see as some sort of reconciliation that he was contemplating with Russia. And so then, of course, the scandals that are going on in the U.S. at the moment and the fact that one of his senior advisers was, um, was forced to resign a partly a result of that internal struggle. There's a lot of internal struggle going on there. Then you might have seen more recently that um, they leaked information about the Manchester bombing without talking to the British, you know. So now there's concern in Europe, including in Germany, about the the way in which um, things are said and, and um, leaked and uh, the lack of sort of communication, proper communication with the US administration. So it's quite chaotic, uh, really, what's going on at the moment. The focus of his opponents on Russia, can you explain that? Well, under the Obama administration and the, the Clinton candidature, you know, there was this new a type of a new Cold War going on, really, with this longer-term plan, which um, the late uh, Brzezinski, who just died recently, set out the whole the idea of the global chessboard, that the U.S. 
future is tied to its domination of Eurasia. Now, Eurasia is a massive area from Western Europe to, to China or to Japan. But the wars in the Middle East are linked to that, and the, the, the geopolitics of Eastern Europe are linked to that, trying to meddle in the relationships between Western Europe and Russia, for example, the politics of Ukraine, the politics in the Baltic states and Poland, blocking gas pipelines between Russia and, and Western Europe. Those sort of things are longer-term plans that have been, were built up by the U.S. establishment, and Trump last year appeared to be challenging those sorts of strategies. So that it seems like the Democrat establishment had embedded itself more effectively with the, what they now call the deep state and also the, the corporate media in the U.S. So that's what I mean by the internal conflict, that the, the Trump, by his loose talking or undisciplined words basically has raised a lot of concerns within the U.S. state and the U.S. oligarchy, and um, that's what they're fighting about at the moment. But what did it for him to focus on Russia, to have these so-called meetings behind doors and those sorts of things, and his, and his son-in-law involved as well? That was revealed recently, something that was going on in December. Apparently it's not unusual that they have some other channels of communication that's gone back to Kissinger and others. But it's the public focus now because of these attacks on Trump over his relations with Russia. It's really a Democrat tactic, a, a political tactic within the US. And indeed, many have said that his missile strike on Syria last month was about trying to rectify that. And indeed, he got a, a section of the media to swing behind him when he started to attack Syria because the politics of the US and Syria are very closely linked to the politics of US and Russia, basically. Those in the US, but also in Europe too. Those things are, are very closely linked now because of the the way in which they see this, this global chessboard. Then his first overseas tour, and of course he went to Saudi Arabia and then he went on to Israel and then on to Europe to tell them how they should behave. In Riyadh, the opening of the Global Centre for Combating Extreme Ideology, and it just defies imagination, doesn't it, that he'd go to a country like that that has been promoting terrorism for so long it's and terrorises its own people. It's Orwellian, isn't it? It's not even controversial, really. You know, you, we've, we've had large numbers of very conservative figures in the Western establishment saying that Saudi Arabia is the ideological root of this type of extremism, this type of terrorism. There's no real controversy over it, really, yet actually it was some time ago that they set up this centre, they put so much money into this centre, and now they take the opportunity of Trump being in, in Saudi Arabia to draw attention to it. But it, it's a strange sort of Orwellian game that, you know, something means exactly the opposite. I mean, the, the former Vice President Joe Biden said it, you know, the former head of the army, Martin Dempsey, said it, that they're funding an arming ISIS. Uh, one of the senior generals in Britain said it. You know, it's not really controversial. But nevertheless, because the emperor says it, um, all of the media sort of bows down and says, well, there's a fight going on against ISIS and here's all these arms being sold to the Saudis. I mean, $110 billion up front with the talk about $350 billion or more over the next few years. Where is all that going? They're running this horrible war against Yemen, but they're not using a fraction of that. This is the biggest arms deal in the world, in, in human history, really. It's astonishing. And, of course, the only possible explanation is that the Saudis are doing what everyone has said that they're doing. They're, they're diffusing these arms to these groups, in the terrorist groups in the Middle East, to destabilise a number of countries. They're trying to destroy 
any of the independent countries that still remain in that region. But Trump's not stupid. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yes, that's true. He's not stupid. He does know what he's doing. Last year he spelt out in great detail when he was critiquing Obama the problems, not only the, uh, the tactical problems, you know, the fact that Obama was losing this, these series of wars in the Middle East, but the deeper problems, the idea of U.S. exceptionalism. He was critiquing U.S. exceptionalism in the world, you know, at the same time as he's talking about making America great again. So he's an extraordinary erratic character, and it's creating a number of problems. I mean, one of them you can see in Europe, for example, with his Europe trip after he'd gone out of, uh, away from Saudi Arabia and Israel, he goes to the NATO meeting and continues that sort of behaviour, and what he leaves behind there is... Uh, Angela Merkel, who of course is a very, the, the German leader is a very important figure in European politics, immediately talking about, well, we have to start doing things for ourselves now. We can't trust these people who, uh, uh, the US, which has this sort of erratic behaviour. Trump went over and started hectoring them about paying more for NATO and so on. So there is a move, there was already a move in Europe to move away from a reliance on NATO for the defence of Europe. NATO is now most active in the Middle East and the Manchester bombing apparently stampeded them into putting more direct NATO role in the Middle East, um, suppose, this, this phony war against ISIS. It's really the escalation of a phony war. That's the, that's the sad thing about what's going on at the moment. But in the longer term, it, it seems like that the Trump presidency is starting to push the Europeans to, to genuinely think about their future without the US there. And that's the problem... It comes back to the problem for, for the U.S., as Brzezinski said, that if the U.S. loses its influence in any part of Eurasia, particularly in Western Europe, then that's really the end of its longer-term influence in the world. How would you judge his time in Israel? You know, the, he did all the traditional sorts of things that U.S. presidents are supposed to do with Israel. He didn't really challenge any of that. He's become really quite compliant in many respects to the mainstream ideology of, of the U.S. deep state and oligarchy. Basically, he's fallen into line in many respects, despite all of his, all of his talk and, and hot wind and so on, but he's alienating people. Apparently, he alienated the Saudis too, not that that matters too much, really, because they bought the weapons and they, they even gave um, his daughter over $100 million for her projects, even though she didn't even wear a, a scarf over her, over her hair when she was there. So... Apparently that was seen as insulting, the, the whole the way in which Trump talked about creating jobs in the U.S. Um, while he was in Saudi Arabia and so on. So he's, he's alienating his, his allies, um, the good, the bad and the ugly. What about his focus on Iran? Well, again, this is part of the traditional, if you like, new Cold War politics of the U.S., that Iran was on its list of countries to destroy, but Iran is the biggest, most powerful independent country in the Middle East, and um, Obama decided he had to back off that when the Syrian war became too too difficult, dragging on over years. You know, I really think that after they destroyed Libya, they, they imagined they could knock over Syria in a few months, and of course that didn't happen more than six years on. So Iran was put onto the back burner, basically, because the attempt to subjugate Iran through, its, through the nuclear program was really going nowhere. So now with Iran energised, really, after the, uh, the end of the, the sanctions deal. New elections? Well, the new elections um, really maintained the status quo. You've got, in, in a relative sense, the Liberals still in control there, although, of course, there's, a, there's an Iranian 
power structure, you know, with it, with the uh, with the theocratic elements, which are not changing really. There's there's great stability in Iran in, the, in that sense, but they still. It's really because it's like all of these countries in the Middle East. The only reason why there's any U.S. relationship at all is to try and destabilize the independent forces there. You know, to have them all under the cover of as in North Africa, for example, Afri AFRICOM, you know, all of these states engaged in a military sense and an economic sense and subjugated to, to US power. That's been the attempt in the Middle East. They've hit a big obstacle in Syria. Iran's in the too hard basket. Iran gets blamed for everything, don't they? They're, they're so-called arming terrorists all over the world. I think that's what Trump said in Saudi Arabia, wasn't it? When yeah. everyone knows it's, the, it's quite the reverse, but... You see, the U.S. system is a strange sort of system, and um, you know, there's a court case, for example, where some relatives of the victims of the atrocities in New York back in 2001 got a court order against Iran for it. So that there's a court that's ordered, I don't know how much, how many millions of dollars of damages to victims of 9/11 against Iran. And you know, I've never seen anyone put any even unconvincing argument against Iran being involved in that atrocity. You know, there were 15 Saudis supposedly on the, the plane that flew into the Twin Towers, but Iran, you know, there's this peculiar sort of mythology in the US that um, belies any sort of reasonable discussion. And there's hardly any mention of what's happening to the people of Yemen. That's true. This, 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 the big secret war in the region is that, that war on Yemen, which has been resisted fiercely by the, the poorest people in, in the world. Yemen's quite a, a big country in terms of population. It's got a bigger population than Australia, for example. Syria's a little bit less than Australia these days with the huge refugee problem. But Yemen really is such a difficulty for the Saudis, despite their billions of dollars of weapons and so on, that there are now these attempts at some sort of political diplomatic brokering going on, which has caused even tensions amongst the Gulf states. Apparently the, the UAE has got some ideas which were at odds with the Saudis and the Qatar has uh, come into some conflict with the Saudis and what they've been saying about foreign policy recently. So Yemen is, is, is too difficult for the Saudis. They can't subjugate Yemen and there are some elements in the Gulf states that want to try and partition the country again. It was partitioned before, but terrible consequences in Yemen because not just the war, but the Saudis with assistance, active assistance from the US have been blockading the port Ansarallah movement has access to still, and preventing uh, food shipments, um, blocking the central bank payment system, preventing sh food shipments into the country. There's a terrible humanitarian situation in Yemen. And many Somali people are caught up in that as well. They've fled from the fighting in Somalia into Yemen. The, the whole region is really, you know, alive with this war and destabilisation because of the ambitions of the big power. That part of North Africa is what General Wesley Clark had included when he talked about the plans back in 2001 of the U.S. to take over seven countries in five years. That included the conflict in Sudan as well as as well as Somalia as well as as well as Libya. How do you characterise what's happening in Sudan? Well, the Sudan was partitioned. You know, Sudan the, the conflict had been. There are very deep roots to what's gone on in Sudan, and it, it has a lot to do with the way in which the, the economic policies of the World Bank set things up there many decades ago. So, as I say, the, over, the overarching logic of the whole region is that the U.S. has a, an operation in North Africa called AFRICOM, 
which is supposedly fighting terrorism and so on. But it's part of the Pentagon doctrine of the complete integration of states in, in, in whole regions, the integration in terms of communications, strategic, military integration and economic integration. And if any of those states fall out of that area, they've got a doctrine called destroying disconnectedness. If you aren't connected to their, their entity, and this applies in North Africa as it applies in the Middle East, then they're going to destroy you. They, they, they've announced that full-spectrum dominant is the other doctrine I was, I was thinking of. It's an, it's an attempt to dominate entire regions. And, well, you, you've got to say they, they've attempted it in the Middle East, they've attempted it in North Africa. There's an awful mess. It's not that they're winning. They aren't winning in Iraq. They aren't winning in Afghanistan, let alone Syria, uh, let alone Yemen. But um, this is a result of their ambitions to dominate those regions and to exclude those they see as the competitors, the other big powers that in the eyes of Washington, China, Russia, a reconfigured Western Europe that maybe has good relationships with, with Russia, for example. That's the game that's going on at the moment. But it hasn't worked in Syria and it's not likely to, is it? No, the Syrians are winning despite the, the terrible things that are still going on every day in Syria. Virtually the entire Western highly populated side of Syria, except for Idlib in the north, is under control of the government now. That's a significant improvement in, in, in recent years. They're getting a handle on that. The US has tried, is still trying um, two broad operations, one in the south and one in the north, to try and get their proxy armies in to try and take control of, of large swathes of Syria, but it's being repelled in the south at the moment. Um, the bigger, more difficult problem is in the north, where they're using the Kurdish card, basically, but they've come into conflict with their allies. Um, Turkey, very important ally in terms of keeping the, the conflict going in Syria, because they still have that open-door policy to allowing jihadists through into Syria. But Syria, by and large, you, you have to say is is gaining. That the main objective now is of the Syrian army is Derizur, but they're doing that carefully because they lost Palmyra twice, remember, and, and regained it twice. Palmyra is virtually in the geographic centre of Syria. Moving east from there to Derizur, they're carefully covering the north and the south reaches, so they aren't outflanked again there. But there's a there's a steady movement towards um, Derizur. That's the priority of the the Syrian army at the moment. And the country areas around Damascus are steadily being being uh, liberated from from those armed groups. But the problem that Syria has is so long as the US has these allies in Jordan, particularly in Saudi Arabia and Turkey, also Qatar and, and Israel, then they can perpetuate this, this terrorism against the Syrian people. Is there a possibility of a Kurdish petition party in Syria? Some sections of the Kurds certainly want that. The US has got it in its bag of options. You know, they say all options are on the table. But I don't believe it's going to happen for, for two reasons. One is they can partition a country as they partitioned um, Sudan, as they partitioned, effectively partitioned some northern parts of Iraq. They've used that effectively in Iraq to weaken Baghdad. But they did that because those countries were were very weak and virtually on their knees in the case of the, the state in Iraq, for example. Uh, they can't do it in Syria so long as the state is not on its knees. And the state in Syria, is, for all the damage, including the damage from economic sanctions, by the way, which is having some terrible effects in Syria, but the state is not on its knees. And so they can't partition it as a, you know, some sort of 
pseudo-rescuers of the Syrian state. So there's still a Syrian constitution. And so any sort of balkanisation or federation or any, any other type of partition would have to go through a constitution of the Syrian people. And that wouldn't happen. I mean, they wouldn't support that. If, it, if the question was put up, they wouldn't support federalisation because they know that's going to make them a lot weaker. And, and one of the strong, resilient elements of Syrian ideology is that they, are, they do identify very strongly as Syrian. Uh, more than, than their ethnic and, and religious communities, basically. So they can't really partition Syria unless they break the state, basically. And you see Syria has survived all this time. You see it's got some very strong partners in there that are, that are preventing that too. Many people on the left in Australia particularly support the Kurdish groups. Well, they do it because they're allowed to do it, basically. They've demonised the Syrian state the US media also has, has tried to create this heroic idea of the Kurds. But in many respects, it's like what they did to the kibbutzim in, in Israel in the 60s here, these brave people going out to the desert and farming the desert and defending themselves from ISIS. And they, the Kurds are defending themselves from ISIS. But remember that the, the main support they've had for most of these six years has been from the Syrian army. The Syrian army gave them weapons to defend themselves from ISIS, gave them a relative amount of autonomy. The Kurds in in Syria have not been subjected to the treatment that the Kurds in Turkey have been. Indeed, a lot of them are refugees from Turkey. At the beginning of the crisis, Bashar al-Assad gave 300,000 Kurds citizenship. They weren't previously Syrians. There's more since then because of the fighting that's been going on in Turkey. So really, people should understand a bit more carefully what's really going on in the region rather than thinking his Here's some people, it's safe to support these people, I don't want to get involved in this war, but here's safe to support these heroic Kurdish people who are appearing in Newsweek and Time magazine and so on. They should think a little bit about what's going on there. There's, there's an ugly side to what's going on with the attempts to have some sort of Kurdish autonomy in Syria, and that is ethnic cleansing. It's been going on for a couple of years. That those Kurds that really do want to carve out a slice of what they call Rojava in, in northern Syria, there's been... Uh, active attempts to either get the other uh, ethnic minorities in the north of Syria, because the Kurds are not a majority in any substantial part of the north of Syria. They're a large minority. They're the best organised minority up there. But they've tried to get Assyrian people, for example, to join in their forces or they'll push them out. And they have pushed them out of um, a number of villages and areas around Kamishli, for example, and Hasaka. So that's the, the ugly side to it. It's been, this has been reported in the US press and even Amnesty International, which is pretty close to the US government these days, has been reporting this, that ethnic cleansing side of things. They say, of course, this will be a, their Rojava would be a multicultural, what do you say, region or statelet. But, um, of course, um, you know, there's no such thing as, as a Kurdish multicultural thing, just as there's no such thing as a multicultural Jewish Israel. There's been a quest for over 100 years now for Kurdistan, what is Kurdistan? Well, Kurdistan is, you know, something that uh, some, some Kurdish groups... By the way, in, in, in Syria, they're not united on this by any way, but they're probably looking for... There are some other options that Kurdish nationalists look for in Syria, and, and one of them is to the preservation of their culture and the preservation of their language. The balkanisation of, a, of a, the state, the Syrian state, is another thing. Now, of course, most of the Kurds are in Turkey, and, and most of the... The, the fighting over that, that Kurdish autonomy issue is in, is in Turkey, basically. But it's spilt across the borders into, into Syria. And greatly repressed in Turkey. 
yeah, the current Turkish government, which is an extraordinary paranoid Islamist government, regards them as the key terrorist threat in the region. The organised militant Kurds in Turkey are seen as more terrorist than ISIS as far as the current Turkish government goes. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why, why Turkey's been one of the major supporters of ISIS there. And there, are, there have indeed been terrible clashes between ISIS and, and the Kurds. But now, with the US trying to play it's the Kurdish card in, rela in relation to weakening Syria, you've got another conflict going on there, which is really preventing the US from playing that card completely because the, the extreme animosity that the Turkish government sees towards the Kurds, with the Kurds in Syria as well as the Kurds in, in Turkey, because Erdogan, the, the Turkish leader, sees that any type of canton or region that's set up autonomous for Kurds in Syria is going to be a threat and an example to the Kurds in Turkey. So the US and Turkey can't get along on this particular issue. Finally, Tim, the Manchester attack. You've got more and more people talking about karma. Jeremy Corbyn joining in. Yeah, well, it's become an election issue in Britain, hasn't it? Yes. It's an awful thing, but it's awfully, awfully logical and awfully predictable from what's gone on in these series of wars in the Middle East recently. Now, this young man, apparently, who was the key responsible, and they've arrested a number of others, there's a group of them, and his father and brother was directly linked to the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Now, the LIFG, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, has declared allegiance to the Islamic State, what they call the Islamic State, you know, ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria. That's a group that has was fated, that was actually, well, fated by US politicians, like given awards, and relied on to overthrow the government of Muammar Gaddafi, Britain and the US had and have direct relationships with people in that in that group and they form part of the squabbling mixture of groups that are still warring in Libya and Libya has no effective state now as a result of that but this group was a group with which the Britain um, did business to destroy Libya now someone from that same group has come back and caused carnage in in uh, in Britain the immediate political effect of that, by the way, and you might consider it a side effect, or you might, if you are more conspiratorial minding, you might think it was planned, was that that Manchester atrocity was the main key that got Trump to put NATO into, back into Iraq and Syria, basically. NATO, after that, or let's say Germany and, and Britain, agreed to have NATO formally involved in his little coalition, supposedly, against ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria. That wasn't the case before. So it advanced the interests of the US there, and we all know that US is playing a double game with ISIS, so it actually advanced the interests of ISIS. Now, whether this was a, a pretext that was set up or a pretext that was conveniently used is it may be an academic question now, but the sad thing about it from the, from the British people's point of view is that this young man and his associates were known to intelligence. They were suspected of going to carry out atrocities some months ago, and yet this still happened. It happened under their noses. And this is not the first time this has happened either, that they haven't no. reacted to intelligence. No, that's right. And, and indeed, there was a man who was one of the former Guantanamo mates who was charged with going to Syria to carry out terrorism. When he revealed the fact that he had these close relationships with British intelligence over going to Syria, the case was overturned. That was Moazem Beg. So British law wasn't able to prosecute them because of the 
the evidence of British intelligence colluding with with those that were going to going to carry out atrocities in Syria. So it was here's the problem of, of terrorism in the world today that this sort of terrorism, ISIS, um, Al Nusra, Al Qaeda, whatever you call it, as long as it's directed at the enemies of the Western countries, it's fine. When it comes back, all of a sudden, it's different. And the problem is you can't play that sort of game. And, and the people in the front line are the people in Turkey and the people in Europe. It isn't blowing back into the US in the same way at all, but it's blowing back into Turkey and into, into Europe. And the more that those groups lose in Syria and Iraq, the more it's likely to blow back. Dr. Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University, and he's also a prominent member of Hands Off Syria. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. After 41 days, the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails have suspended their hunger strike after a deal with Israel on the eve of Ramadan. Yusuf Al-Rimawi is the presenter of Palestine Remembered on 3CR on Saturday morning and I spoke with him just an hour or so ago. Yusuf, just how many prisoners have suspended their hunger strike? The um, well-known uh, statement is that all of the prisoners have suspended their hunger strike. And uh, this was in uh, relation to 20-hour negotiations with the jail authorities uh, on uh, Saturday uh, dawn that uh, coincided with the first day of the fasting month for Muslims, the Ramadan. And we have been um, uh, watching reports and we have been reading also statements from prominent uh, figures, including uh, the wife of Marwan al-Barghouti, Fadwa al-Barghouti, and also another statement from Ahmed Saadat, the leader of the popular front for the liberation of Palestine, with also uh, the mother of Samir al-Aysawi, who is uh, a very famous Palestinian prisoner from Jerusalem, and they all uh, indicate that um, the hunger strike has been suspended. There's also uh, another uh, important uh, name I want to mention, who is Karim Yunus. Karim Yunus uh, has been serving or has been imprisoned uh, since 1983 and he could be the longest serving political prisoner in the world uh, this day. And his family also issued a statement that he suspended the hunger strike. Why has he been in jail for all those years? He was imprisoned in '83 for um, affiliation to Fatah movement, uh, which of course was considered by Israel a terrorist organization in the 80s. And he has been uh, imprisoned since then. His mother is 83 year old. And even visiting him has become very uh, difficult for her, not for health reasons, but because the jail authorities keep putting obstacles and obstacles with time. So um, 
I would say if I want to mention the, the, the symbols of the Palestinian mass hunger strike, I will mention five names, including Karim Yunus. Karim Yunus has been voted as an honorary uh, member of the Central Committee of Fatah Party uh, just three days ago in response to his steadfastness. Can you explain what the deal entails? I have in front of me now a statement by Mr. Isa Qaraqa, who is the head of the prisoners' department at the Palestinian Authority. And Mr. Karaka says that 80% of the demands of the prisoners have been agreed upon. And I want to just say something. When the mass strike started, we have heard lots of statements from Israeli ministers and members of parliament saying that they will never discuss or they will never talk to the prisoners and they will never negotiate with them. And we also have heard statements that say that they can stay hungry until they die. But Israel was forced to negotiate with the prisoners. They, Israel tried to bypass the leadership of the, of the prisoner by trying to speak to uh, other, uh, other prisoners other than Marwan Barghouti, but uh, the prisoner movement proved that they were united and they actually showed Israel that they will not accept any form of division for the mass hunger strike. So by just sitting down and negotiating with Marwan al-Barghouti and the leadership of the, the strike, Israel was defeated and conceded the biggest symbolic defeat. Now, uh, I can also uh, say that uh, the demands include to uh, lift the ban on visit from the second degree relation, uh, uh, re- relatives. There's also to stop the ne- medical negligence and to improve the imprisonment conditions of minors and female prisoners. And also, uh, I also want to uh, say that uh, the second degree relatives visits, the Red Cross didn't want to cover the cost of this. So the Palestinian Authority said that they will cover the cost of the second-degree relatives. And I want to say that, in general, most of the humanitarian demands that put by the prisoners to the Israelis have been agreed upon. And therefore, I consider this a huge victory to the prisoners. And I consider 41 days of more than 1,600 prisoners in really mass hunger strike, which could be the biggest, uh, not in terms of the number of days, but in terms of the number of participants uh, in the, uh, over, over, over the last 50 years since the imprisonment of Palestinians started after the occupation of West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem. But the fact, Yusuf, that it took 41 days and the, the pain and suffering of those men and their families... Uh, Absolutely. You know, I have spoken to mothers of prisoners during the the hunger strike. Um, The the level of pain inflicted on their families is huge given that Israel isolates the prisoners, prevents any form of communication, prevents any form of lawyer visits. So they don't know anything. They don't know. they, they, They for sure know that the health 
of her beloved ones deteriorated, but they don't know how and in what form. So you can imagine, and they of course don't know how long, how, how much longer it will take, and if they will continue till martyrdom or no. So the other thing uh, is that the level of support they received from from let's say the Palestinian civil society might be satisfactory, but overall there has been some form of limitation or shortcomings when it comes to the support the families wanted, and they felt a little bit neglected by, not necessarily by, by a particular uh, color of the spectrum, as much as it is the, 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 the media, the, the Arab media, the international media. We've here, here in Australia, the hunger strike didn't make it to mainstream Australian media even after 41 days. So, uh, of course, they will feel neglected and, and they will feel betrayed. So, yes, the pain is huge. I don't want to also talk about the pain of the hunger striking prisoners. You can imagine to choose to stop eating for 41 days and to rely on salt and water. And you can also imagine that is a response by a series of punishment measures that includes sleep deprivation, making non-stop noises around the cells, and also taking them to solitary confinement cells. And when I say solitary confinement, I'm talking about uh, a room that's one meter, 20 centimeters uh, long, uh, long and 80 centimeters wide. That is really a place where, where you feel suffocated a minute after being there, not living there for days and days. So you can imagine. Who is there in these prisons to make sure that the Israelis do what they're supposed to do? That's a very good question. The, the Red Cross is the only third party we can talk to. The Palestinian Authority, of course, uh, in, in coordination with the Red Cross, can follow up the measures, but Israel will not get away with breaking the agreement uh, terms because the moment, because the, the, the prisoners will or or have said that they will resume the hunger strike if Israel did not adhere to the terms that they signed on. What about the health issues for those men now, after 41 days? After 41 days, I mean, I would say all of them need medical uh, treatment, and some of them were in really critical stages. There was a smuggled picture of Marwan Barghouti who was handcuffed and walking, and he seemed that he had lost so much weight, but he was walking and he was smiling. Uh, so, in general, I would say the health uh, situation of the Palestinian prisoners have deteriorated, and I, w- I, I really hope that their health will be back on track. Now, I also want to say that we received the news of the suspension of their hunger strike with so much happiness. I myself uh, was one of the people who who has been active on social media trying to promote their case in Australia. We created a page called Australians for Palestinian Prisoners, and we've seen the, uh, um, the interaction on this page. People were happy. The families took the street and they started chanting and dancing. The Palestinian mothers made uh, also slogans and they were dancing and singing. So this level of happiness made made us really feel reassured that they have their demands met. 
And this is one step, surely, towards the full rights for Palestinian prisoners under international law. This is one step towards that. And there, I would say that, as mu- yes, we know that it's a marginal step and we know that they will stay in prison and we know that Israel will keep imprisoning more and more Palestinians. However, to show this level of steadfastness and to bring back the Palestinian cause to the front page of most of the media outlets, the Arab media outlets, after all these years, after seven years, of what the so-called Arab Spring, where uh, well, all Arab countries were busy in their internal issues, this is a huge victory, and we owe the prisoners a lot for that. They actually made us feel proud, and they showed us the actual meaning of dignity. The name of the strike was the Dignity Strike, and yes, it was all about dignity, and they, they really taught us how steadfastness should look like, and I am really grateful to the families of prisoners for being together and for showing us the solidarity and for staying uh, united all the way up. Have you contacted the ABC or maybe the Age over the last week or so to ask them why they're not covering, why they didn't cover this issue? I should say I have not contacted them and maybe I should have. I was under impression, I would say, that, uh, that, that it's not going to be fruitful to speak to them and they might just give me an automatic type of response. So uh, I'm not saying that I shouldn't have done that, uh, but I have little hope when it comes to the fair representation of the Palestinian issue on Australian mainstream, uh, mainstream media. And that's why outlets like 3CR become very important programs like your program and and like Palestine Remembered, my program might be the only uh, way where we can express and have our voice heard. Well, all I can say, Yosef, is congratulations to you and your comrades for the the work that you've been doing with these prisoners and to make sure that it was a good outcome. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you. You have spoken to me. This is the third time during the hunger strike and uh, you have uh, supported us uh, everywhere you can, and this is so appreciated by all of us. Thanks, Yusuf. Bye-bye. Thanks. And that's Yusuf Al-Rimawi. And you can hear more from Yusuf and his friends on Saturday morning, 9.30, Palestine Remembered. You'll hear much more about the great victory for the, the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails and more to come, I'm sure, on their program. There's one way you can help. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves, in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Before I go, I'll make one more mention of the Radiothon, which is today fortnight, which is the 13th of June, and I really hope that all my listeners... We'll ring in 
on that day. Well, you don't have to ring up on that day. You can ring up any day you like or you can go to the webpage and donate online or you can ring 94198377 during office hours. There's lots of ways that you can donate to 3CR. And um, as the saying goes, it's all tax deductible. But the important thing is keeping 3CR on air for yet another year. So I'll go out with a few more community announcements and then it will be time for Done By Law. Stop failing our kids. The juvenile justice system is a racist disgrace. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is launching a campaign to highlight factors including poverty, homelessness, loss of culture and racist over-policing as key contributors to youth incarceration in Victoria. The campaign kicks off with a week of action starting on the steps of State Parliament on Thursday the 25th of May at 12.30. Be there. For more information including campaign details go to isjamelbourne.com Let's hold the Andrews government to account and halt the law and order race to the bottom. ISJA Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Stand up, stand up and be Come join me for a shindig every Wednesday here at 3CR at the midnight hour to 1am. I will be bringing you tracks from the 1960s and tracks that have an influence by that sound. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Pauline Fartson Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. And that is all for me for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4, 3 to 6. Stay tuned for Done By Law. They'll be here in about three minutes' time, so we'll go out with Archie Roach. No, 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 no. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.